gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Hey listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, as I was just telling our next guest, um, it is a it is a Shonda, it is a shame, it is a tragedy that I have uh, not had him on earlier than this. It's one of these weird things where you all of a sudden you start realizing the people who kind of fell through the cracks. But I'm a big fan. I've known him a bit for a while. Uh, he's a s- senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. Um, which AI would crush in softball if it was a little easier to get to games. Um, and uh, former head of policy planning at the State Department, um, all around former Harvard egghead guy, uh, Peter Berkowitz. Welcome to The Remnant. Good to be with you, Jonah. Thanks. So um, I normally have a policy of asking people questions that I've always wanted an answer to, but like felt weird sending an email about, or like, like I, I, I got stuck next to someone on a plane and they said, Oh, well, yeah, you know, I got my PhD in political theory and I, <laughs> I, I know about Nietzsche and whatnot. I said, Oh, well, let me ask you this. I've always wanted to ask this. So just to get out of the way, because if I, if we start talking about Israel or politics, whatever, I don't know if we'll get back to it. I don't know if you know this about me, but I have a deep seated, I think fairly well thought through animosity towards American philosophical pragmatism. <laughs> and, Um, although I really like reading Richard Rorty. Okay. Mm. So there's a tension there. And I actually like William James for all sorts of reasons. I just don't like philosophical pragmatism. Anyway, you, I believe you used to, one of your, I think your first book was on Nietzsche. That is correct. Very, very few people in Washington know that, but it's true. Yeah. I remember I read it a long, long time ago. Um, wow. I'm impressed. My lips are still tired and I'm, I can't. (laughs) Can't swear I understood all of it, but Rorty is sort of famous for this argument that, uh, or I shouldn't say famous because almost no one knows this, but he's well known in certain circles for this argument that uh, what William James and John Dewey were doing in terms of pragmatism in the United States was a somewhat kindred, although maybe emotionally very different uh, or culturally very different, but somewhat kindred philosophical project to what Heidegger and Nietzsche had been doing in Europe. Do you think that's right? Where do you think that's right? Where do you think that's wrong? Do you think that's obvious? Or do you think that's obviously wrong? Just where do you think about it? Uh, first, I want to say I would have never guessed that this <laughs> is a subject that we were going to speak about. Uh, it may be the second time in the 20 years I've been in Washington this has come up. And third, I'm delighted to take a crack at the question. <laughs> like you, uh, I, I, or I should say I share with you, skepticism about uh, philosophical pragmatism. I myself don't enjoy reading uh, Richard Rorty. William James Mm -hmm. is a bit different. But I think that their philosophical enterprises, contrary to Rorty, are entirely different from from Nietzsche's. With Rorty, in one sense, there's a similarity. Nietzsche did understand himself, in one sense, overcoming the entirety of the Western philosophical tradition. Uh, Rorty, in an earlier book, Philosophy in the Mirror of Nature, more or less... Uh, suggested, well, Nietzsche was right, and therefore we can, we have to, so to speak, begin again. We begin again with something with something we'll call pragmatism. And we'll say philosophy amounts to, or the moral standard amounts to, whatever works in the circumstances. Of course, as you know, uh, written about it, uh, th- this is a transparent dodge because 
what works in the situation itself is quite mysterious and open to uh, many different interpretations and great contention first. Second, Nietzsche actually had great reverence for um, Plato, Aristotle, and the philosophical tradition. Take his book, Beyond Good and Evil. Rorty, we'll focus on Rorty, not James, who I think is a more uh, complex and interesting thinker, but Rorty, who is so popular, really wanted to get beyond good and evil. And his idea of moral philosophy was, um, or his idea of how to uh, make a moral argument more or less went like this. I've found X to be useful, pleasant, or rewarding. I, re I recommend it to you as well. Uh, I can remember a, a lecture he gave at Harvard University uh, at the Kennedy School of Government in which he more or less uh, made this argument about human rights. Uh, the best we can do is maybe travel around the world and say, worked well for us, we recommend you give it a try. Beyond that, he was not willing to uh, enter into argument about philosophical matters. Nietzsche, on the other hand, devoted a great deal of his philosophical career to rescue, to attempting to rescue the philosophical understanding of uh, truth. Now, it's uh, take, for example, his book, Beyond Good and Evil. Subtitle, often overlooked, is Toward a Philosophy of the Future. Also, his uh, fascinating opening statement is not given the attention it deserves. You'll remember it. He begins, supposing truth is a woman, what then? <laughs> so superficial readers take that to mean, ah, Nietzsche disagrees with Plato. Truth is not something out there one, one can seek, one can search for. And I think it was Richard Rorty who invented the notion of truth with a capital T, mm -hmm. and truth with a small t. We can have small, truth with a small t. But of course, um, if one were to think about women, or even uh, if one were to follow uh, what Nietzsche goes on to say about women, his point is not that truth is not out there. His point is not that truth is not, doesn't exist. His point is that truth is elusive, mysterious, requires patient and sometimes daring courting, that the philosophers have been uh, poor lovers of truth. Now, who is it among the great philosophers of the past? who connected philosophy to loving? Answer, among others, Plato. Who among the great philosophers received, listened patiently to a great lecture on the relationship between eros and truth? Answer, Plato in the symposium. So Nietzsche is, uh, is better understood as someone who believes that the great Western philosophical tradition from Plato down to the present has betrayed the pursuit of truth as understood from the beginning, and who seeks to stand up a new generation of philosophers who have the courage to pursue truth even to the most unlovely places. Whereas Richard Rorty was a sort of, everything's pretty good here in America, what do we have? To, don't have to worry too much about things. And the best we can offer you is, uh, is to do what works, and we can't really say much about what works. All credit. As you attested, I completely blindsided you with the question. And uh, that was a pretty good answer for someone who's completely blindsided by the question. Uh, you got points on the board. Um, so another question I would ask if I was sitting next to you on the plane. You say you don't like reading Rorty. I, I'll just say that, like, Rorty at least 
writes as if he cares about having readers outside of a certain sort of you know gnostic sect that all understand the shibboleths and and all that kind of stuff right that's that's as far as i'm going to go in a defending rarity that and the fact that in a in a was it achieving our country was that what it was yes Rory? yes short book yes where he i thought very smartly and astutely said the american left had wasted an enormous amount of time on bolshevism and thinking about bolshevism and thinking about bolshevik marxism and i, I thought for a lefty to make that kind of point was useful I, I grant both those points. Rorty was a clear writer. In uh, that mid-90s book, he, he exhibited frustration, impatience with what actually became a, a post, which what was becoming a postmodern left, became a hyper-postmodern left, has become the, the woke left. Absolutely give Rorty credit for that. But here's a, a story which may help illustrate my own impatience with Rorty, <laughs> even though uh, I acknowledge that, uh, that you, you were right good writer, and he began uh, to see the directions, the bad directions which Lech was going. This is a tale from probably uh, late 80s, uh, maybe, maybe mid-1980s, Princeton University, a um, PhD defense, Rorty's student, two other philosophy professors there, a political theorist is there, and the student is asked a question about John Rawls. Uh, John Rawls, as you know, was seminal political theorist, seminal academic political theorist, uh, with books Theory of Justice and Political Liberalism. And the student went off in a rant against John Rawls. Finally, he was interrupted by one of the three examiners at this PhD dissertation defense. And the examiner said, I, I have one question concerning your critique of John Rawls. Have you ever actually read Rawls? <laughs> To which the student replied with a kind of supercilious indignation, no. The implication, <laughs> <laughs> implication being, well, he's read Foucault Derrida Lacan, why would he waste his time on Rawls? So uh, after the student, uh, after the exam was concluded, Rorty turned to his two colleagues with embarrassment and said, you know, I, I agree with everything that student said about what's wrong with Rawls, but the difference is, I earned the right to say that, meaning he, Richard Rorty, has actually read Rawls and, and was familiar with the philosophical tradition. That's true, but Rorty left something out. Rorty encouraged the attitude displayed by that student that the 2,000 years that had preceded the student were of no real interest because Foucault, Lacan, and Derrida had shown us that they were unnecessary for... Uh, for thinking seriously, for writing, for having an impact in the in the public sphere. So why waste your time on that sort of thing? This was the a not so indirect message of Rorty's uh, much of Rorty's philosophizing. So bully for him in the 1990s, <laughs> <laughs> but he had already done a lot of damage. That's all fair. I agree with that. Much is made. Uh, oh, the 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 sort of just airplane question is uh, before I get to it. It's very difficult for me to judge how good a writer ancients writing in ancient Greek are because it's always translations and there's this, I don't know, you have to go, how, I don't know how much weight you put into the, the, the sort of Straussian argument about esoteric writing. And so what, who are they signaling this to? Who are they really writing to? Is this a conversation behind a veil that I don't have access to? All, all that kind of stuff. But of modern philosophers, I've generally had, particularly the postmodern crowd, I've generally had the view 
that they write poorly on purpose, that it is a kind of, it's, a, it's, a, it's an exercise in sort of um, shibboleth manufacturing. It's like you have to be in, on, it's, it's a way to screen out people who aren't part of the team by just, if you think this is bad writing, like homie baba, right? If, if you think this is bad writing, that just shows you how unsophisticated you are, which is also sort of code for not part of the group. Um, a friend of mine, he wrote, uh, he did his PhD in, in history at Columbia at his defense the, for his dissertation, the, one of the people said, look, before we get started on anything else, I just want to say how just w- well-written this is. This is, it reads like journalism. It's really, it's, it's just, it, the pages just move. It's great. And my friend's heart sank because this, he knew, was code for a deep and abiding insult about how unserious the scholarship must be in their, that mind. And so, anyway... First of all, I'm kind of curious, what do you think of that? How much of that do you think is actually going on, or is that just my prejudice? And two, who would you say is the worst major, <laughs> worst writer among major philosophers of, say, the 20th century? So it has to be in English. I can't speak to Heidegger where you have to read three pages to find the verb or any of that kind of stuff. But Well, the, la- the last question first, the, the worst writer... At- and wh- when you ask philosopher, you mean someone recognized already as... Yeah, I mean, so I'll give you... I'll give you my answer, which is John Dewey. I find that John Dewey's philosophical writing is to be exasperatingly verbose in ways that I find annoying. But that's also because of the era in which he was writing. But, Partly is I, I I could I could live with uh, I could live with Dewey because one can ray uh, you say verbose. Yes, you can read ten pages and have almost no idea how he has advanced the argument. Uh, that's true. Look, among the great philosophers, legendarily, um, Heidegger. Uh, but, but the case with Heidegger is different from people that we, uh, professors, I do not regard as canonical figures, Homi Baba. Judith Miller is, uh, often comes to mind. I certainly know a philosopher, but a, a feminist, a critical theorist who is fami- famous for producing unintelligible sentences, you know. These items begin with a capital letter, and eventually there's a period somewhere. But the, the language is highly abstract. Uh, the, the words are not used by ordinary people. And the combination of them seems to, to most of us to lead nowhere. Is this intentional? I think it's intelligent, in, intentional for the reasons you mentioned. Part of it has to do with the professionalization of philosophy that begins, especially in the German universities, toward the end of... Uh, for the end of the 18th century, was Kant maybe the first great canonical philosopher who was essentially a professor, uh, perhaps? And with Kant, we get really the uh, crystallization of a professional language for talking about philosophy. When you're reading uh, Plato, for that matter, Aristotle, Cicero, in uh, medieval times, Aquinas is a bit different because he's such a great systematizer. But Maimonides, Farabi, and, and the Muslim and the Jewish traditions, th- these guys are not professional philosophers. And while their language may be, uh, or their thinking may be difficult here and there, it's a vocabulary that's going to be largely familiar to literate people. That changes around the time of the 18th century, where uh, philosophy becomes a profession. And so... You know, if you're going to practice law, you have to acquire the language of law. If you're going to practice medicine, there are t- technical terms you have to learn. From Kant forward, there were technical terms you had to learn. 
But what we see, especially in the last 40 years, 50 years, especially under the influence of um, French postmodernism, but now, of course, the United States is, uh, is leading the league in debasing, uh, in debasing academic discourse. We, we saw, I think, as you were suggesting, Jonah, a deliberate effort to uh, obfuscate, keep other people out, and suggest there are two teams here. You're with us or you're against us. And if you even raise questions about, about this language, it shows not only that you are intellectually feeble, but morally on the other side. This was not, uh, this was not Kant's aim. It was not Hegel's aim. It was not Heidegger's aim. Uh, to keep people out in in that way, they were they understood themselves as uh, achieving a new lo- a new level of of rigor, and they lived within a university. That's part of what uh, part of what happens. But I I, I see something uh, pernicious going on in this use of not just obfuscatory. I I think the secret is sometimes it just is uh, unintelligible. And if I may add, this phenomenon is is quite different from. Uh, from what Strauss was talking about, the notion of esoteric writing, because the notion of esoteric writing actually depends upon writing uh, using language that is clear. So Strauss's argument was that um, writers who did live in liberal democracies faced persecution for uh, unorthodox thinking. So they were compelled to hide uh, uh, their deepest thoughts and convey a surface teaching it was at least consistent with political convention, what the authorities could live with. They couldn't convince the authorities that they were uh, uh, that their beliefs were consistent with convention unless unless those beliefs were intelligible. So, even in translation, nobody uh, people who pick up Plato or Aristotle are initially amazed by the uh, apparent simplicity and lucidity of of the language. Now, following the arguments can be difficult, especially in Plato's case, because we're dealing with a literary format. In Plato, we have nothing but dialogues. And, uh, and in that context, Strauss's thesis is even more compelling because any of those, who, any of us who've ever actually had a conversation know that we don't always say everything we know and believe. And we suspect that our interlocutors are every once in a while holding back or using irony, sometimes effectively to convey, convey multiple truths at the same time. So uh, the older view and the thesis about uh, esoteric writing is one that depends upon clarity, whereas for our postmodern and woke friends, um, uh, their continued sway depends on their obscurity. All right. So I, I think Everyone will agree that I have sufficiently checked the box on the eggheadery. Um, and I can do this for the rest of the show, but like, I, I, there are other things I do want to get to. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have 
unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash remnant. That's tnusa.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame? And you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. And so I, I guess the, the bridge question would be, so I, I have been, and I've, I've I've talked about this quite a bit with our mutual friend Yuval Levin, and I love intellectual history, right? I, I just do. And I think intellectual history is important. I think ideas have consequences. I think ideas are important. All that's stipulated. At the same time, I have come to the a much more nuanced view about the importance of the history of ideas, insofar as I think not in every instance, not, this is not a uniform rule. I'm, I'm against all monocausal explanations of the universe and all that, um, except maybe for <laughs> like God, but often the ideas are lagging indicators rather than leading indicators that the ideas are in some, to some extent, pretextual, um, to justify more recognizable sort of Machiavellian elite power stuff. Right. And so, to bring it into the present day, you know, the DEI or intersectionality or wokeness before that political correctness, right? These are all, I'm not saying there aren't important ideas that led to this, but it feels to me more like there were certain people who knew what they wanted to do and they go through the center aisle of the supermarket and they grab some Foucault and they grab some of this off here to gussy up what is more about essentially faction, power politics, circling the wagon, self-aggrandizement, feather betting. And, and, and I'm not saying it can't be a catalytic 
process where the ideas fuel fuel even more of this behavior and more of this behavior legitimizes the ideas even more, right? It doesn't have to it, it be chicken and egg. I just go back and you look at the 20th century, you know, I, I spent a lot of time looking at people like Herbert yes. Crowley and everyone talks about how Herbert Crowley is the godfather of American progressivism and all of these sorts of things. And it is not entirely clear to me that promise of American life or the greening of America, you know, or a half dozen famous books that supposedly started movements were in fact totems that symbolized a movement that it was already there and they needed some, they needed some swag to sort of symbolize what they were already doing. And I'm just wondering, since you're someone who's sort of dedicated much of their life to, to about the primacy or the importance of ideas, like, where do you come down on all of that? Especially in this matter, I, I, I tend to be, to borrow your excellent phrase, a chicken and egg guy. <laughs> I mean, it seems to me um, obvious that in the debate between our um, ideas, the leading causal factor of you know, what takes place in political society or events, it's the interaction of ideas and events. But let's take the, let's take the specific case that you've put before us, postmodernism, identity politics, wokeism, diversity, equity, inclusion. So on the one hand, we certainly see a powerful trend within uh, American constitutional government, liberal democracy, to uh, increasingly demand freedom from external constraints, to increasingly break down the claims of tradition, to increasingly say, each individual chooses for himself or her, herself, not, and not only what religion to worship, not only whom he or she will marry, but um, whether he or she is a he or she. We break down all barriers. Okay, so that's that is encouraged by it seems to me a free and democratic society. The United States is the oldest such, uh, and it shouldn't be a surprise that these tendencies have worked themselves out in a way that we continually extend our, our founding principles, to, to the detriment, by the way, I should say, of those founding principles. That said, we also have choices. We can, we can constrain those principles. We can bring to light other considerations. I see the, uh, much of what undergirds DEI, postmodernism, wokeism as yes, as you also suggested, a desire for power. Certain groups have, have discovered that um, a certain sets of arguments actually have amazing purchase on people, people in power, especially um, elites. But let's tell this, uh, uh, let's go back and review the history. We've had documented at least since 1951 by the great William F. Buckley, uh, in his first book, God and Man at Yale, arguably the only boring book he ever wrote, because even the great William F. Buckley could not make uh, the the summary of course syllabi <laughs> fascinating. He did probably as best as anybody could, but already then we uh, he he uh, he provided uh, chapter after chapter of evidence, as you know, probably most of your listeners know, but worth emphasizing that uh, by the late 1940s, the Yale University Social Science faculty was bent on teaching its students collectivism, progressivism, 
using the state to bring about happiness for the people, and that the humanities faculties were bent on teaching atheism, not teaching that among the possibilities out there was atheism, but the atheism is the true and complete uh, understanding of the world. Our universities have been promulgating since at least the late 1940s, ideas uh, out of step with uh, traditional American understandings, I would say even founding ideas. So while on the one hand, I think many of today's proponents of uh, DEI, many teachers of postmodernism or identity politics have as a no longer very well-disguised motive, a determination to um, undercut the claims of authority that uh, this group has made or that group has made, debunk the Constitution, which would, which in their view gives more power to their groups, their outgroups, their historically ad- discriminated against groups. Okay, a bid for power. At the same time, they weren't just walking down the grocery store, grocery store aisle and said, ah, this is, <laughs> is going to help me get the stain out. Uh, no, they have been for uh, 75 years been educated in an educational system that more intensely teaches them. All claims for the past are not just suspect, fine, we learn independent thought, but they're no longer, it's not so much that they're suspect, it's that they're convicted, convicted of the familiar racism, classism, sexism, ethnocentrism, uh, and so on. I believe that uh, uh, we, we have here a case in which And now, from K through 12, our youngest professors have been marinated in uh, the idea that the United States is divided between oppressors and oppressed. And they see, maybe they can't always admit it to themselves, they discern, they intuit how useful these arguments can be to them in acquiring um, not just uh, a sinecure professionally, but more power for their groups outside their professional discipline. Yeah, no, I, again, I don't. I mean, I'm a bo- I'm a both and guy on 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 a lot of these things. But if you broaden it out beyond the universities, because I, I think that the you know, and this is a family podcast, but I think it's fair to say that that the that one of the biggest problems with the elite university system is that they believe their own bullshit, right? And so it's it's a it's it's a complicated problem because. And you, I'm sure you've encountered it as much as I have. You try to explain to them that you are actually for, I mean, to sort of borrow a Wordian trick, right? I am for lowercase d, lowercase, you know, lowercase d diversity. I'm for lowercase e equity to a certain extent, you know, and I'm certainly for a lowercase i inclusion. But these capital letter things require you to not only express sympathy with the high concept, but with the actual tangible allocation of resources and exclusion of certain groups in a programmatic way, or you are bad. I mean, I generally find the sort of tendency on the right to say everything is Marxist that they don't like kind of exhausting at this point, but but there is a style, a rhetorical uh, echo in the arguments of Ibram Kendi and Marxism in the sense that the, the Marxists were great at saying it is no accident that or this is it is this is objectively fascist right because they wanted to invoke the authority of science yes and sort of universal omniscience with while well, dethroning god and so kendy's whole argument about how whether something is racist or not 
basically boils down to you have to agree and support the policies I like or you are a racist regardless of what's in your heart. And that's a very Marxist kind of move. And it's difficult for me to credit a lot of the people who sign in, sign up for that stuff as it not being more product of motivated reasoning than actual persuasion, because I find the arguments very, very weak. Yes, because uh, weak, that's already generous. Often they're not arguments. Come back to that. But first, um, please, let, let, uh, even this not to Rorty is too much. We, we don't need to speak <laughs> about diversity with a capital D and small d. We need to say this. Of course, we're for diversity, equity, inclusion. But what the DEI crowd means by diversity is sameness. What they mean by equity, it's absolutely clear discriminating against people on the basis of race. And what they mean by inclusion is exclusion. So we're for it, but we're opposed to what they seek under the label diversity, equity, inclusion, which is sameness, uh, discrimination, and exclusion. I, I quite agree with you about the style of, um, of Kendi's argument. And I've just this week, I'm uh, reading and going to write about a book which displays this at a much uh, higher uh, level of sophistication. It's a book by um, Sam Moyne, a professor of history and law at Yale University. It's a um, angry critique of Cold War liberals, Cold War liberalism, who he thinks betrayed the Enlightenment and betrayed liberalism because they um, limited the political project to uh, the American political project to protecting individual rights. And because they didn't, they were worried about the danger of entrusting government with the job of promoting the good life for all Americans. What he means by the good life is a life in which we uh, make ourselves the authors of our existence. Richard Rorty. Mm-hmm. Um, also some Rawls in there, but yeah. Also, also a, a, a tiny bit. more. You would see more, more Rorty than Rawls. Never mind. Point is... <laughs> uh, po- point is he makes some very bold claims about what's at the heart of um, what's at the heart of the Enlightenment, what's at the heart of liberalism, and the wickedness, Cold War liberalism outlook. Maybe I shouldn't say wickedness, but the debased character of their thinking. We should we should explain for listeners who he means by Cold War liberals. So can you just give me some like na- name check? Y- y- yes, I should. Um, although he, here too he um, he operates in a somewhat perverse manner. His collection of of Cold War liberals includes um, Judith Sklar, Isaiah Berlin, Karl Popper, Hannah Arendt, Lionel Trilling. That's a mixed bag. Yeah, it, yeah. It's it's not that uh, none those people don't belong, although uh, Hannah Arendt is 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 questionable there. It's that um, when we think of Cold War liberals, that is men and women who rose to the defense of the free world of liberal democracy against the threat of communi- communism, you're more, m- much more likely to think in the first breath of, uh, of Hayek and Raymond Aron, you might think of Daniel Patrick Moynihan mm-hmm. and Jean, uh, Jean J. Kirkpatrick, never mind for his, uh, his eccentric grouping. The point is the structure of his, ar- of his book. He doesn't actually argue for his interpretation of the Enlightenment, and he doesn't actually mount a critique of um, the political harms of uh, the Cold War liberal view. For him, the refutation of Cold War liberalism is to demonstrate that Cold War liberalism differs from his own preferred moral and political opinions. There's no argument uh, in favor of the idea 
that American, uh, uh, that democracy in America ought to be devoted to emancipating all of its, all of our citizens from tradition, whether they like it or not. That's the true view. And there's no real argument again about the political cost or the unwisdom of the general sensibility of the Cold War uh, liberals. Not even discuss that they were wrong that um, Soviet communism represented a, a genuine threat to all they held dear. Uh, merely the, the refutation is the identification of the difference, just as with Ibram X. Kendi. You are, there's no such thing as neutrality here. There's no such thing as not being part of this debate. Either you agree with me on every matter of my anti-racist agenda, or you're a racist. There are only those two choices. Comrade, you're either with us or against us. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've been arguing for years that the single most fascistic statement used daily in American life is, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem, right? Because basically you are, you're basically saying you are someone who needs to be fixed or bowled over, <laughs> or you're with us. And, and that kind of thinking is all over the left, right? I mean, I, I just think that, and like, this is the, if, if, when I do a sort of a understand progressivism 101, uh, are, you know, talks about the 20th century, I, the, the basic shorthand is the arguments change to whichever path is the shortest route to expediency and power, right? So, you know, you start with Wilson, who's very much a, a congressional guy, Congress needs to be supreme, but then he gets to be president. So he's like, okay, president needs to be supreme. Liberals then go with uh, imperial presidency for a while, get through FDR, and then they realize, oh, no, no, it's got to be the courts. And then it's, you know, or it's got to be the bureaucracy. It's always just going where the field is open towards ends. And I got to say now, since we're, we're almost 40 minutes in here, this sort of gets to the next phase is that I have become, I think I, I've paid my dues as a loyal foot soldier in the forces of the right for a very long time, but I've become an inveterate and unapologetic both sides are. Um, <laughs> and I see a lot of these problems manifesting themselves on the right. And I do not dispute for a moment because this is the, the com most common rebuttal I get is, okay, maybe you're right, maybe you're not, but the left controls everything. And, you know, so Hollywood, uh, higher education, journalism, I have no dispute with the claim that the distribution of power and influence is asymmetric in our country. And one of the reasons you get the bad things happening on the right is because of that asymmetry. This idea that all the elite institutions look down on flyover people to want for a better term and or traditional minded people or whatever um, is one of the reasons you've gotten the reaction that you've gotten. Still, that doesn't mean I like the reaction. And um, we're seeing uh, rise of sort of, uh, the, depending on what you call them, nationalists or post-liberals. They used to be, they've sort of split off into the Judean people's front and the people's front of Judea these days. But um, uh, th there's a lot of that going on. Adrian Vermeule, uh, Patrick Deneen, and, and whatnot. And getting back to my point about how sometimes the ideas are lagging indicators, I would argue that a lot of the stuff that is much broader than the intellectual side of things, because say what you will about Adrian Vermeule and Patrick Dedean, they're intellectuals and they're, 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 um, and they deserve a certain amount of seriousness with which you take them. If you go out into the broader political infrastructure of a lot of right wing media, the arguments in favor of this or that approach 
are lagging indicators from the need to justify a rationale for Donald Trump and his candidacy. And we can go all the way back to the Flight 93 election stuff with that. And so the reason why I get more worked up about what's going on on the right these days is because I'm used to it from the left. And I think that the American political system desperately needs a healthy and serious political conservatism that is rightly informed by American traditions and American liberalism, or we're toast. You, you can't have two status parties. You can't have two, you can't have two gas pedals and no brake pedal in a healthy political system. And um, so I'm just wondering, big picture, where do you, I just didn't want to blindside you by let you say stuff and then me come at you by disagreeing or agreeing or whatever. Yeah. So I just wanted to lay down level set. Where do you, th- how do you think about all of this stuff um, going on on the intellectual side, but also on the political side? I have a very long answer to this question, but this podcast uh, will not last for uh, two or three years. So uh, I'm going to make it brief. I wrote a short book, very short book, an extended essay about 10 years ago called uh, Constitutional Government, Liberty, Self-Government, and Political Moderation. Uh, And I made the case there that there were varieties of conservatism in the United States. And we don't, of course, everybody is vying for the title to conservative. This is not a fruitful contest because uh, in contrast to liberalism, which has actually a substantive comment, substantive concept at the center, freedom, which we can quarrel about, conservatism is always relative to particular tradition. So you, you always have to ask yourself, what are you making a priority of conserving? And I argued in that book and have continued to argue since then that reasonable and wise Americans ought to make a priority of conserving uh, America's founding principles, the charter of government that instituted them, the constitution, and the uh, moral and political preconditions for maintaining a free society. That doesn't obviously end all quarrels, but it's a a good place to begin the uh, debate. I have written at some length in criticism, sometimes in sharp criticism, of our national conservative friends and our common good conservative friends. What unites them is a hatred for something they call liberalism. For a while, uh, a longer time ago, I thought it might be useful to um, revive this term, save it from its association with the left wing of the Democratic Party, save it from its association with the idea of being a tax and spend political kind of guy. There's a problem out there, Let's raise taxes, spend more money on it, it'll get better. But uh, in recent years, I've found it's more useful, probably more accurate to speak about the modern tradition of freedom. There is such a tradition. The American constitutional government is one of the gems of this tradition. And there's a defining thought or conviction. You might even say self-evident truth that uh, defines this tradition, actually tells you whether you're in it or not in it. And that Uh, conviction is that human beings are by nature free and equal, principle on which our nation's founded. If you embrace that idea, you're part of our tradition. Terrific. And by the way, I have friends outside of our tradition, but you're in a different uh, tradition. I believe that that the NatCons and the common good conservatives who believe that their number one enemy is the modern tradition of freedom, for them, exemplified by uh, John Locke, especially one book by John Locke, the second treatise, especially one chapter in that book, the second chapter on the state of nature, especially one paragraph in that, (laughs) 
that that is the source they believe of all of our problems. Just a parenthesis, I will mention that you would never know from Patrick Deneen, Yoram Khazoni, Adrian Vermeule, that uh, John Locke wrote an entire book about how to cultivate uh, virtues in children from the moment of birth until the, uh, reaching the age of ma- maturity. In any case, I stand w- with you in being deeply worried about anti-liberal tendencies on the left, which are not merely tendencies, they are proclaimed opposition in Denin, in Vermeule, in Chazoni, the ideas associated with Locke, they don't like to say also the Declaration of Independence, but Denin has more or less said that. These are uh, evil opinions Mm -hmm. about what human beings are and what can become, and they must be overcome. Uh, This is deeply worrying. I'm not sure how closely they're related, but also all tendencies in politics on the right, on the left as well as the right, on the right as well as the left, that uh, proclaim we have reached a point of American politics in which half of our polity, a third of our polity on the other side, uh, are not e- should not even be considered as Americans. Their views are so un-American as to disqualify them in respect as citizens. This is the language that uh, justifies civil war. It is a long-standing, venerable teaching of the modern tradition of freedom that... Uh, Almost nothing justifies civil war. So uh, I'm opposed to all those uh, today who are making arguments that push us in the direction of civil war. All right, so not to beat a dead horse on this, but so one of the reasons why I've had this sort of quasi-epiphany about ideas often being lagging rather than leading indicators is if you actually go back and you look, in part because of my engagement with Deneen and these guys also working on my last book, that a lot of the ideas that we call liberalism don't begin as ideas. They begin as cultural, quirky cultural norms, right? The British, or I should say the English, were just weird. And there's a lot of the stuff that we get, you know, literally some of it comes from the fact of like banning cousin marriage. And then there's stuff about, you know, the the sanctity of one's hut and, um, and these various customs that over time get improved upon, systematized, turned into doctrine, right? So like the man's home is his castle eventually becomes the Fourth Amendment, but it starts as like this quirky, weird seventh or ninth century English custom kind of thing. And and the only reason I bring this up is that what drives me crazy about the Hazoni, Deneen approach to Locke is they seem to think that if they could just get a big enough bottle of whiteout and get rid of that paragraph that you're talking about, the entire spell would dispel and no one no one would believe in liberalism anymore. When I, I, I trust that when you were teaching, you know, at Harvard, like the share of your students who had read before you assigned it, the second treatise on government was pretty small, right? The average American doesn't read this stuff. The average American can't tell you what's in Montesquieu or, or Locke or any of these things, but the average American knows they have a right to a fair trial. The American American knows they have the right to free speech because these are cultural norms that they can appeal to the authority of these ideas if they need to or their lawyers can. But the reality is, is that this is a liberal country, regardless of what the paper says. Now, I'm all in favor of the paper, particularly the Constitution, and I think it's an important thing. But the reason it has power is because we we give it power. We give it reverence. The idea, though, that you can 
argue the American people out of, you know, like Sora Bamari, I used to love reading him talk about how they were going to impose the highest good, you know, this Aristotelian highest good by yoking themselves to Trumpian populism. And I always loved the image. I don't know where I first got it from of him going into a, you know, a biker bar in South Dakota and explaining to bikers for Trump that we're going to now we're going to ban porn because the Pope says so. It's just like that. Just, it doesn't work as an actual political program, in part because they just want to argue with the ideas. I get wanting to argue with ideas, but you have to actually argue with the ha habits of the heart. And this is a liberal country. It's always been a liberal country and it's gotten more or less liberal over time, depending on all sorts of things. But it's not driven primarily by the ideas. It's driven by the deep abiding cultural commitments that that are a wet reservoir in this country. Agree. Uh, I have a high philosophical point to make about it, but I'm going to begin with an anecdote about my niece when she was four years old. When she was four years old, her parents announced to her and her sisters that they that tomorrow workers were coming to install carpeting in the family room. Once the new carpeting was installed, uh, the children would no longer be allowed to eat in the family room. Carpeting was duly installed. The next morning, my sister, my niece's mother, found my niece, my four-year-old niece, happily eating her cereal, watching TV in the family room on the brand new carpeting. My mother, my sister, somewhat indignant, said, Tali, I thought I told you very clearly that you're not allowed to eat on the new carpeting. Tali, without looking up from the TV, replied to her mother, yes, mommy, but you are not the rules of me. <laughs> now." Four-year-old Tali, I'm quite confident, rules of me, autonomy, had not read Kant and not read Locke. Somehow, at the age of four years old, she had imbibed a principle of our regime. Well, properly understood, the principle would be, once you, achieve, once you achieve maturity, Tali, and the fullness of the development of your rational faculties, you'll take responsibility for yourself. How did she learn that? Well the children's books she reads, the cartoons, the TV show she was watching, the general sensibility she had already uh, absorbed. Now, two higher philosophical points from Aristotle. From Aristotle, we learn, I'm just now saying that, Jonah, your views are backed by great authority, Aristotle. Aristotle, Aristotle teaches us that if we want to understand the behavior of citizens, we need to understand the kind of regime in which they live, because the arrangement of political offices gives them lessons about what their expectations should be. If you live in a liberal democracy whose laws are based on the idea that human beings or citizens are free, and, all human beings are free and equal, but citizens share equally in, in rights, this is going to teach citizens willy-nilly that they control large swaths or they should control large swaths of their life. Second, there is a huge misunderstanding of Aristotle in Danin, in Sokhrab, in Adrian Vermeule. Aristotle did not teach that uh, our aim in politics should be to instantiate uh, the best regime which promotes the best life. Aristotle is quite clear on this. He says, you know, we have a standard of what's good in politics, but generally and for the most part, you all you're going to be lucky if you find yourself in a decent, tolerable regime. It's a kind of mix where um, the wealthy people, who tend to be few, and the majority of people, who tend to have less money, they're going to have to split power. We call this mix of oligarchy and democracy, Aristotle called it polity. And for the most part in politics, 
The best you can hope for is to prevent things from getting worse. Why? Because the oligarchs are always going to have a tendency to want more power for those who have achieved wealth, status, and power. And the people are always going to want a piece of the wealth, power, and status that the oligarchs have. So you're in permanent tension. You want to, you want to stabilize things. Aristotle's message was not, take whatever po form of political life you have and attempt to uh, institute, institute the best form of uh, politics and have the regime teach virtue. So uh, Aristotle's political lesson, Aristotle's political lesson is one of moderation in, uh, in these regards. And I would and uh, I believe that when it comes to uh, constitutional government in the United States, Aristotle's message is understand your regime, understand the spirit of the people, understand its blessings, understand its weaknesses, Appreciate that, like all regimes, it will take it will tend to take its principles to its to the extreme, and develop public policies, develop rhetoric, uh, make arguments in the realms of ideas that help uh, temper its worst excesses and that help sustain its greatest blessings. I like that answer. I I, I think you know there are two kinds of people. They're the kind of people who divide the world up into two kinds of people. And then there are the other kinds of people. And, you know, uh, uh, your colleague, a great hero for everybody, Tom Sowell, uh, you know, constrained versus unconstrained. You've always been writing a lot about insiders versus outsiders. We've all do left versus right. And these all have different benefits and drawbacks depending on the context. I think that one of the things I wish I could teach more people is to appreciate various good things because they're hedges against bad things rather than guarantees for good things, right? So like the, you know, the, our constitutional system is not set up to per make perfect society. It's set up to be a hedge against horrible society, right? P Jews educate their kids to a fairly well and want them to be doctors and lawyers, not so they'll be rich, but so that they will never be poor, right? And that's the, it's the hedge against bad things that, um, that's why you know, I, I do not fetishize democracy. I'm perfectly open to the idea that democracy yields all sorts of terrible results sometimes, and, and the voters can be wrong, but democracy is a great hedge against worse things. And so anyway, I, 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 if you feel free to respond to that, but I also just wanted, in the time we got left, so it wasn't until basically before October 7th, obviously, um, uh, that I started to focus on the constitutional crisis in Israel, which is now kind of a dead letter for a little while. Um, but I'd never really, I mean, I, if someone had asked me to describe Israel's political system, I think I could get kind of close, you know, fairly well. I had not really appreciated until I started looking into the constitutional crisis, uh, the Supreme Court stuff, how truly fakakta is Israel is a, is a political <laughs> system, right? And um, I think it's one of the, that was one of those fights where I agreed, I mean, talk about being a both sideser. I thought the people who said, look, this is no way to run a Supreme Court, this is crazy, had really good points on their side. The people who are out in the streets protesting this effort, I think had really legitimate concerns. And so I, I'm, I'm kind of curious, A, how you view, just put October 7th aside, because it's so, you know, it's, it's really a pre and post thing. But, um, it seems to me that Israel is a really good illustration of the point I was making earlier that Israel has a really 
incredibly rich civil society, social capital, intellectual capital, moral capital, spiritual capital that can compensate for the fact that its civic infrastructures are ridiculous. And we've got really great civic infrastructures, but we got real problems with our social, moral, and political capital in this country. And it's a weird inversion. And it shows out that you can like, you, you can do without the training wheels of a constitution if you've got, as John Adams would put it, like a, a moral, morally centered people who know what they're about. But if you don't have that stuff, you could be in real trouble. I mean, that's just the way I've been thinking about it lately. Do you think I'm wrong about Israel's system to begin with? A couple quick reactions. Um, actually, uh, you'll forgive me for agreeing with you again, but uh, I, I, um, I think your basic assessment is correct about the judicial controversy. Ever since Aaron Barak's uh, led constitutional revolution of the mid-1990s, which uh, dramatically aggrandized the Supreme Court's uh, power, essentially giving it authority to rule on almost any matter that arises and to assess the reasonableness of that matter, uh, it became clear pretty quickly that it was necessary to rein the court in. That said, the proposals put forward by the Netanyahu government were extreme. Just to give you one example from the original set of proposals from which the proposals never recovered. Proposals included something called Piscata Hitkabrut, the override clause, which would have given a bare majority in the Knesset of 61, 120-seat Knesset, uh, the ability to override a decision of the Supreme Court. Effectively, that would have swung the pendulum from one extreme, the Supreme Court has the authority to intervene in any matter, to the other extreme, saying the Supreme Court has the final say in no matter, since any matter can be overruled by, by a simple majority. Uh, not time to go through all, all, all the other mistakes that were made in the judicial, judicial reform. But let's put it this way. Um, significant reform uh, was necessary, but the reforms that were proposed um, were uh, wildly in excess and were responsible for, in my judgment, for provoking the, um, the months of protests uh, that would, would would be continuing. Israel would be in the midst of a constitutional crisis now if it were not in the midst of a uh, existential crisis caused by the a hardened existential crisis, security crisis caused by the October 7th massacres and Israel's need to uh, um, exercise its right of, of self-defense. There was an earlier point, though, that you made, a segue that I also wanted to uh, respond oh, to. About, I, the, about how Israel's jet, its political system is fakakta? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. So, uh, yes, a quick story. Well, um, yes, that, and, but, but also the, the uh, resilience of Israeli civil society. So, like, uh, like the United States, uh, the Israel, Israel um, declared independence amid war. United States in 70, 1776, Israel in 1948, like the United States, uh, in its declaration of independence, Israel announced that the uh, nation uh, would be founded based on uh, a number of uh, basic rights and fundamental freedoms. Complicating, uh, it also announced that Israel would be a state for all of its people, that Arab, uh, Arabs would be offered citizenship on equal terms. So Israel was founded as a rights-protecting democracy. It's complicated because Israel was also founded as the nation-state of the Jewish people. That creates tensions. But we know in politics that um, that, a principle or an institution, create tensions is not a reason to get rid of it because all political principles and institutions and policies create tensions. So Israel was founded as a 
state that was Jewish, free, and democratic, that protected rights and was democratic. The Declaration of Independence itself proclaims that within two years, um, a constitutional assembly needs to be created to create a governing structure. But war and then uh, the continuing threat of war uh, never gave Israel the opportunity to do what the United States did, which was, uh, well, the United States actually, we had an Articles of Confederation, but uh, even 15 years later, Israel was not able because of crisis after crisis to actually um, convene the Const- Constituent Assembly that the Declaration called for. Israel also faced another challenge to to forgive the emergence of a Fakakta uh, political <laughs> system. Remember in the years in the years following the War of Independence, Israel absorbed an, a refugee population equal to or slightly larger than the whole state at the time. More than 600,000 Jews, 600,000 to 800,000 Jews were expelled or forced to flee from their homes in North Africa and the, uh, and the Middle East. In any case, the net result was Israel does not have a proper constitution. It has a piecemeal a set of piecemeal enacted uh, basic laws. They're inadequate to the task. It was uh, eventually headed for a constitutional crisis. One quick story, if I may, I was talking to a friend yesterday uh, who teaches at Harvard and whose son also now goes to Harvard. He was telling me that in his son's friend group was an Israeli who uh, came to Harvard after his military service. And he said, this friend seems to be, you know, a kind of college, the Israeli, he's 24, 25, a college Marxist. Um, <laughs> he, he's in favor of uh, drastic reform, even revolution, it's possible. A day after the October 7th massacres, he, uh, he's a sophomore at Harvard, he got on a plane to return to Israel to join his, uh, his troop, his brigade, and, uh, and fight in Gaza. Subsequently, my friend had dinner with uh, his son and a couple classmates at Harvard. They're Americans. And all of them expressed astonishment at what their friend did. Drop everything. He was a sophomore at Harvard to go fight, risk his life for his country. And all of them expressed doubts that they would do such a thing. Yeah. So Israeli civil society has a vibrancy and a resiliency that, um, uh, that has seen it through to a considerable, ex- to a considerable extent. Uh, the shock, the trauma, the heartbreak of the massacres and the continuing heartbreak of waking up every day and seeing on uh, the front page of the newspaper above the fold the beautiful young faces of two or three more soldiers who have perished. Uh, all that said, uh, there's reason for us to continue to be worried about our friends in Israel and our friend Israel, the nation state of the Jewish people, because, yes, the debate over judicial reform has been uh, uh, judicial reform or uh, um, regime change, as the critics call it, has been sidelined. But all the old enmities, the pre-October 7th enmities and grievances remain, and they are now um, accompanied and intensified by a new grievance. Each side blames the other side for a lack of readiness, preparedness, uh, which led to October 7th. The right blames the uh, left, led by many leaders and former leaders of the military for weakening the country. Uh, the opposition blames the uh, Netanyahu government and the extreme uh, elements for provoking necessary demonstrations and for um, provoking Palestinians in both the West Bank and, uh, 
and Gaza. So uh, while we see heroism and great resilience of civil society in Israel, Israel ha- faces some very tough times ahead, it seems to me. Yeah, so just a couple of points. I mean, you know this stuff better than I do, so I'm totally open to correction. But it was my understanding, I can't remember where I got this, but it was someone who knew what they were talking about, that part of the problem was that Ben-Gurion, like all the founders of Israel, they were fairly typical European socialists to one extent or another, Jabotinsky notwithstanding. And they saw like the idea of an upper chamber of parliament, you know, a a Lords or a Senate as a hindrance. They saw constitutions themselves as a hindrance on that sort of generic, you know, inevitability of progress towards socialism. Right. And so, I mean, that's the only thing that at least was my understanding of it. So I agree, obviously the fact that they're constantly being attacked has to play a role in all of that, but there was also a sort of an ideological opposition to the whole very idea. And I, so I'm just kind of curious, do you think, cause you know, the old joke is you get five Jews in a room and you get seven opinions and you know, and all that kind of stuff. And there are all the jokes about the guy <laughs> on the Island who has two synagogues and he won't go to the other one. Right. You know? So like, I, I, I get it. So the idea of having a constitutional convention is is almost a Saturday Night Live skit to me or a Mel Brooks movie, you know, for 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 Israelis, because Israelis are more contentious than American Jews, too. And um, at the same time, it just feels like no way to run a railroad. And I'm not a big fan of parliamentary democracy, but at least have an upper house. Right. Or at least have rules about how the Supreme Court is going to work. I, I didn't know until this stuff that if you. You, like, you know, in, in American jurisprudence, you need to have standing to bring a lawsuit. You don't need to have standing to take something to the Supreme Court in Israel. That's nuts. Yes. Or, or put it slightly differently. Everybody has standing. You, you don't like X. Doesn't matter. You weren't directly affected by it. Your cousins weren't directly affected by it. Nobody knows affected by it. You think it's wrong. You can bring it to the Supreme Court. By the way, the, it's, it's not just standing. It's uh, just this. Justiciability. It's easier to say in Hebrew. Barak, I think, in a and dictum wrote a very simple uh, Hebrew sentence: "Hakol shafit." Everything is justiciable. Was it a good idea to declare war yesterday? Well, that's uh, why shouldn't the Supreme Court decide on that? The structure of the security barrier. Why shouldn't the Supreme? Everything is in principle justiciable, whether it's been legislated on or not. Why? Because the idea of the Supreme, the very idea of a Supreme Court authors us, authorizes us to be the final statement on what's consistent with the principles of reason and democracy. Okay. Yes. That, that's Twarkinianism. That, that's left-wing living constitutionalism on steroids. You're right. Moreover, I think your uh, other point is uh, is sound. It's not it's not just that Ben Gurion uh, was not schooled uh, in Anglo American principles of limited government. It, it, he was a socialist. It was not just that uh, he thought he was the wise man for the moment and did not wish to be constrained. It was it was also the third point. It was both those points, but it was also Israel was in genuine emergency conditions. In fact, the emergency conditions, which were both security and economic, Israel's a kind of uh, economic powerhouse now. Um, but for 20 years, uh, it lived in a period it called Senna, the period of austerity, 
government-imposed uh, restrictions. So all of these considerations led to a sidelining, plus uh, I guess the fourth you mentioned. Yes, the Jews are a contentious people, and they're even more contentious now. Uh, the great Ruth Gavizon, a professor of constitutional law at Hebrew University, a woman uh, on the left who um, in her 50s and 60s migrated to the, uh, the sensible center, was a student of American constitutional government. She actually um, uh, sought agreements among the various parties in uh, Israel, but she recognized that a constitutional convention was not in the cards because you need supermajorities to agree to constitutional basics. So Gavizon's idea was um, at best to seek legislation uh, for some basic organizing principles of the legislature and the uh, judiciary. We're, we're all, the Israelis are a long way off from a bicameral legislature. Unfortunately, uh, they live in this paradox, and they have for a long time, that the very conditions that make a uh, the establishment and ratification of a constitution so urgent also make it so elusive. That is the tremendous divisions within the population. Just off the top of my head, I can I can identify the um, the secular progressive elites who dominate in Tel Aviv, especially in the high tech industry. The religious nationalists who are different from the ultra orthodox who opt out of military service. The Mizrahi uh, Jews. These are Jews who hail from North Africa and uh, and the Arab world who tend to be uh, who tend to be more traditional. This is to say nothing of 20% of the population, 21% that is uh, the Arab citizens of Israel, who, uh, while it formally enjoying full, uh, full rights, still are a community that has not been uh, nearly fully integrated into Israeli life. Under these circumstances, uh, it's difficult to imagine the um, formation of supermajorities around constitutional principles. Unfortunately, what's difficult to imagine is also urgently necessary. All right. Um, so I, I read your exchange about the Robert Kagan, Trump's a dictator. Yes, thing, yes. And then the attacks on you from the bulwark and yada, yada, yada. We don't have to get too deep in the weeds on all this. We can put links to the various things. I think all of your criticisms of Kagan are, are, are well taken. I think that the catastrophism is one of the reasons we're in the mess that we're in. And this is one of my one of my bullet points on my passionate both sidesism, right? And the right catastrophizes, the left catastrophizes. Uh, a lot of really ridiculous people who are part of like the the sort of griftery social media far right, literally. I mean, like 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 Mar what is it, like Chernovich? There are these people who are literally saying that if Biden gets reelected, there is going to be a uh, Hutu versus Tutsi uh, genocide where. Uh, conservatives are going to be killed in their homes. Millions and millions of people are going to be killed if by if the Biden regime is reelected. I think we don't have to debate this. I think that's very, very stupid, right? And very, very dangerous just to tell marginal people that this is part of the conversation. So, I, and at the same time, you know, my my standard response to is Trump Hitler for his first term was, look, Trump's not Hitler. Hitler could have repealed Obamacare. Uh, <laughs> right. And, um, and so I do think I probably more than you reading a little bit between the lines of, of your piece, I'm more concerned about 
a second Trump presidency in part because of all the people who will not be around him in a second Trump presidency. And I think that as a, just as a rule of good, decent American rhetoric and politics and custom, when you say you're going to, you're running for retribution, when you're saying you're running for revenge, when you say you want to repeal the con- suspend the constitution to get back in power, those should just be disqualifying things. And then to get elected after saying those things is bad for the country where I, I think I disagree with you a little bit is that, while I don't think he'd try to be Hitler, I don't think he'd invade Poland or any of that kind of stuff, right? Um, I do, let's put it this way. You don't have to be 100% sure someone's going to be a dictator to be worried about it, right? If you think there's a 10% chance, that's bad. If you think there's a 100% chance that he'd be a 10% dictator, that's bad too. And I do think that the you look at the kind of people he wants to put into the into the Department of Justice, some of the people that the sort of heritage adjacent people, all of that, the things they are saying about how the federal society doesn't know what time it is and we need people who are really willing to test the limits of things, that's dangerous unto itself. And isn't that softer claim worthy of co- abiding concern? Yes. Uh, as I pointed out in the piece, of course, actually, uh, presidents who are 10% dictator is actually a common feature of American politics. Uh, our system was set up because we presume that people who will reach the apex of power will have those tendencies in excess compared to uh, the rest of us. My Both of my pieces I uh, were, uh, as they say in the law, narrowly tailored to meet just one criticism, one claim, is that Trump is destined to be a dictator And I have one fear of that. If you say that Trump is destined to be a dictator, you are authorizing all means necessary. All means necessary. In 1942 in Berlin, there's a plot to assassinate Hitler. Uh, A reasonable person doesn't, doesn't ask himself or herself if that's consistent with the law. A reasonable person assassinates Hitler. So uh, that that's what I worry about on the left and the right. I I didn't uh, I didn't try to address the range of other concerns that um, arise uh, when in contemplating a uh, Trump uh, uh, second Trump presidency. Am I worried? Yes, uh, I'm worried. Are there a multitude of criticisms to make of Donald Trump? Every time Donald Trump speaks, it seems he says something uh, outrageous that could that could cause worry. On the other hand, uh, <laughs> you know, um, George Will made a comment like uh, the one you just made. He said uh, Trump is dictator in twenty uh, in his first presidency. He couldn't build more than a few miles of the fence that he intended to uh, uh, the thirty foot fence uh, across the whole border with Mexico that he intended to build. How's this man going to institute democracy now? Uh, the moment the argument shifts to um, this kind of harm or that kind of harm uh, that could be caused to uh, to the people in the United States, to government in the United States, from my point of view, we're on a different plane. You know, uh, and I'm also, as you know, I'm simultaneously worried uh, about the weaponization of the Justice Department and the FBI to get Trump. And when I think about um pushing the United States in the direction of authoritarianism, uh, significant parts of bureaucracies, abandoning the idea that they are disinterested technocrats and embracing the notion that they're out there to serve the agenda of a political party, 
That worries me. And this and the uh, example now, the second time of a sitting president uh, authorizing his Justice Department to go against the leading candidate, those of the other party, that also has the form of um, of dictatorship. I believe neither side should be using this language. Well, I'll leave it at there. Neither side should be using that language. Most of the criticisms of Trump and most of the criticisms of Biden can be made without using a kind of language that authorizes followers uh, to engage in lawless action. And again, it seems to me, if you're bent on saying the other guy, the other candidate means to institute dictatorship, you are uh, you encouraging lawlessness. I think that's all perfectly fair and defensible. I, I agree with that. Peter Bergowitz, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I hope you'll come back. Uh, I would love to. Is uh, thank you, thank you for your questions and observations. Okay, to make up for the unduly short episode with Daniel Hanan, uh, we went a little long with Peter Berkowitz. And uh, Hanan and Berkowitz sounds like a pretty good first two names for a law firm. Anyway, so I hope people were willing to indulge me in my philosophical nerdery at the beginning about Nietzsche and American pragmatism. I think at least some listeners know where I'm coming from with all that stuff because I've written and, and, and talked about it before. But if I need to do a whole big thing on American pragmatism, I will. So we're going to try and put some shows in the can, but I'm going on vacation with uh, the, the lovely uh, and talented, uh, I shouldn't say lovely and talented, although she is lovely and talented, but with the fair Jessica middle of next week, um, I'm doing an event first in Florida and then I go off to the British Virgin Islands, which is very exciting. And so we're going to try to put some shows in the can before I go, but we may have a guest host. Um, I don't know what's going to happen with the solo next week. We'll try and figure that out. It's kind of hard to do in the circumstances where I'm going to be, but, uh, there you go. You've been notified and, um, there's time to become, it's always in fact a good time to become a subscriber to the dispatch. So if you're not one, give it a shot. It can't hurt. We always have a good deal going on and um, you'll be helping this podcast. You'll be helping us do a lot of good things. And um, I think you'll get a lot of value for your hard earned money. So with that, thanks for listening. And I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Yeah.